0: Stephen Roby is a respected Jimi Hendrix historian, archivist, and the author of Black Gold, The Lost Archives of Jimi Hendrix, and becoming Jimi Hendrix. He was the editor and publisher of Straight Ahead, the International Jimi Hendrix fanzine from 1989 to 1996, and the editor of the Hendrix family's authorized fanzine, Experience Hendrix. He has also written feature articles and reviews for Guitar World and Goldmine. Please welcome
3: Stephen Roby. Thank you. Let me just make a few adjustments here. Thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight. I'm, I see some familiar faces here. Uh, myself and my co-author were here actually about two years ago at Skylight Books uh, for my second book called Becoming Jimi Hendrix and uh, that was a lot of fun. So it's, uh, it's fun to be back here in LA and the great weather you guys got. I just came down from the Bay Area and it's starting to get cold and foggy up there. But Thanks for coming out tonight. Let's get started and uh, let me tell you a little bit about my background and how I became such a true Hendrix fan historian archivist and it all happened back in 1967. Here's a uh a picture of me when I had lots more hair than I do now and uh, my introduction to Jimi Hendrix was through radio and uh, there was a great FM station back in 1967 called KMPX. Uh, A legendary person named Tom Donahue ran that and shortly after the Monterey Pop Festival uh, they, they started playing Hendrix and they said that they were the first radio station in America to play a Jimi Hendrix record. and I believe them, they said they got a European import copy. And once I heard fire, I was hooked. And uh, in 1969, I uh went out and saw my first Hendrix concert in Oakland Coliseum and then after Hendrix died I became a hardcore collector. I was talking to some of the collectors that we have here tonight with us and we used to trade cassette tapes and go back and forth and made friends all around the world before the internet kicked in and I felt at that time that it was important to start some sort of communication going and um, I began this fanzine called Straight Ahead which lasted from 1989 to 1996 and then went to work for the family of Jimi Hendrix, and that's Jimmy's dad, Al Hendrix, up in Seattle. In a brief time, I worked uh, for Experience Hendrix and ran their fanzine called Experience Hendrix. And then my first book was called Black Gold, The Lost Archives of Jimi Hendrix, and Jimmy's bass, bass player, Noel Redding, wrote the foreword to it. And uh, I don't know if some of you follow me on Facebook or some of the things I've been up to, but in 2009 up in San Francisco, I wanted to break the Guinness Book of World Records for the world's largest guitar ensemble. The goal was to get 3,000 guitar players to play Purple Haze all at the same time. I got the idea from Country Joe McDonald of Country Joe and the Fish, who did get three thousand guitar players to play a Woody Guthrie song called "This Land Is Your Land, This Land Is My Land," and I thought, well, if he could do it with that, I could probably do it with uh, uh, Purple Hayes and Jimmy. But unfortunately, one of the greatest lessons I learned is that musicians gig on Saturday nights and they don't like to get up early on Sunday morning, especially when it's cold and foggy, and drag their at axe and ass out to Golden Gate Park, so that was a lesson learned. But we did have about 500 guitar players. A lot of fun. 2010, this book came out. I co-authored it with a local author here, Brad Schreiber, Becoming Jimi Hendrix. It chronicles Jimi's R&B years from 62 to 66, and uh, that book leaves off where my next book starts, Hendrix on Hendrix. It's a compilation of interviews and encounters with Jimi uh, including his first interview given when he landed in England and concludes with his last interview done just about a week before he died. Does any, has anybody ever seen this quotation uh, in regards to... <laughs> some people have, and they know how I feel about it. But a, a show of hands, is anybody, how many people think that Jimmy actually said that? Okay. About a week ago, I had lunch with my wife and I bought a bottle of iced tea from a company called Honest Iced Tea and they had that same quote uh, on there. When the power of love overcomes the love of power the world will know peace. Great quote, but Jimmy didn't say it. This guy said it. Anybody know who he is? Time's up. Pencils down. I'm sorry. Uh, Sorry. The correct answer we were looking for is William E. Gladstone, who was a UK... Prime Minister, way, way, way back then, looks nothing like Jimi Hendrix, but I wrote the company, Honest T, and I said, look, Jimmy didn't say that, can you do something about that? And they wrote me back, they emailed me right back away, and they said they're going to stop manufacturing that one and get a, a proper Hendrix quote, and I sent them a book just to encourage them to do so. <laughs> this is what Jimmy said, when the power of soul, with the power of soul, anything is possible. I like that quote much better, more honest. So that's what the book is about, is getting history correct and what Jimmy said correct. In fact, in the book uh, there's a section called Quotable Hendrix and it gives the source and and the exact words that Jimmy said and that to me, I think, that's my goal with this book is to make it a reference book a fun book to read for fans but something that uh, fans in the future can look back on and find actual historic documents that uh, Jimmy said and was a part of. The book starts out with Jimmy talking about his years in Seattle as a youth, troubled youth with both of his parents and his brother Leon getting tossed around to various foster homes. Jimmy also talks about his school years, going to Garfield High School and uh, some of the crazy times then with a, uh, a school teacher that sort of had a crush on him. And then his time in the U.S. Army, uh, once his guitar arrived at the base that his father sent him, he sort of gave up on his uh, on a career in the Army and decided to uh, get out of the Army rather quickly and pursue his career as an R&B musician. Hendricks also talks about uh, the years playing with the, the likes of Joey D and the Starlighters, Little Richard, and even the Isley Brothers. And, of course, the book's main focus is on his time as a rock icon. The guy we know as Jimi Hendrix. Here's Jimmy talking about now, some of those early days. Let me turn this up. It was
4: so well. <laughs> it was so very hard to me because at first, man, oh, I was so scared. I wouldn't dare go on stage. No, you know, like I joined this band, I knew about three songs. And when the is would play on stage, man, I was, you know, like this. You know. And then I had to play behind the curtains. You know, I couldn't get. Up in the And then, plus you get so very discouraged. You hear different bands playing around you, and the guitar player seems like it's always so much better than you are, you know. And then most people give up at this point because you know they get very discouraged. But it's not you know. This keep on, this keep on. If you're very stubborn, you can you know make it. That's the only way you know. Try to make it. Be very
3: persistent. Be very stubborn and persistent if you're a musician. (laughs) Good words of advice. Anybody know who this lead singer is here? This guy here? Wilson Pickett is the correct answer we're looking for. And the bonus point question is who is this guitar player here? Time's up, pencils down. Cornell Dupree, the great Cornell Dupree. Uh, Jimmy was in a band with uh, King Curtis back then and uh, played some amazing gigs with them. And uh, this is in 1966 before he left. Uh, He was gigging back and forth with this band here, Curtis Knight and the Squires. And we'll get into them in just a little bit more uh, in a few minutes here, but the next section of Jimmy's life that he talks about in the book is uh, leaving these R and B bands and going down to Greenwich Village and playing at a place called Cafe Wa. Yeah,
4: you know, I was down in the village. It was very, very quick. This R and B group, you know. I said, "We're coming down the village, so we can uh, uh, get something together, you know, on our own stands, not playing behind another person that was playing, you know." And they were lazy, they are scared, and plus they, they didn't think that they going to get paid. I said, well, why imagine you going to get paid on the audition, you know, because, like, it's us you know, going down there um, being aggressive, you know, it's, it's us going up, filtering down to them, you know. So there's a few things that have to give up at the beginning. They didn't want to do that, so I just went down there and played, got Randy, got a frame together, and formed this group called the uh, Blue Flame. And, uh, uh, I heard of the animals. Well, the managers of the animals. You know, the animals were in town one time, doing the last gig at Central Park, doing the last group the gig as a group. And the bass player, the animals, Chess Chandler and Mike Jeffrey, asked for to come to England. And I've never been to England before. That's the
3: only reason, because I've never been. And they're swinging England in 1966, and. Uh that's kind of uh, I really enjoy that uh, Hendrix is like putting his life together. One of the early reviews that the book has got is, says that uh, Hendrix never wrote his own autobiography and this is probably the closest we'll ever get to Jimmy in his own words telling his life story. You are um, supposed to be
4: something very new and the
3: and how true that was. This is December of 1966 and their single came out, Hey Joe. One of the interesting things in this book is I tried to include a diversity of articles and interviews uh, that aren't just from the mainstream and this comes from a um, Student newspaper. Steve Barker uh, went to college in the U.K. and got to interview Hendrix twice. It was seemed to be that easy. You could just approach uh, his management and say, "I'd like to interview him." And two of his interviews uh, ended up in this uh, college newspaper, and those are very interesting to read and have never been really been around before and we're still in December of 1966 and the Monkees and the Jimi Hendrix experience are both mentioned in the same headline there. Hendrix's first uh, single is out and the Monkees are starting to make it big over in England there and their paths would cross again in about seven months when Hendrix comes comes back to America. And we're gonna listen to uh, a short interview with Jimi talking about what his chances are of making it big back in his homeland. What do you think of the chances in America? Oh, it'll be alright, you know. It's gonna be alright. It's like over here now. No, it is, you know, cause it's just like any other country. It just takes a little more time, all. So. And one of the way they, ways they marketed Jimmy, Jimmy's management that is, is they uh, built up on his act was full of sex and gimmicks and playing the guitar behind his back, between his legs and everything like that, and eventually setting it on fire in uh, the, at the Monterey Pop Festival. But that act, <laughs> for some of the fans, the 7 to 12 year olds who went to uh, the Monkees concerts, uh, Jimmy was labeled too erotic and we're in 1967 now and what Hendricks failed to do uh, when he was discovered by Chas Chandler, as he just mentioned, was to talk about a contract that he signed in 1965 for $1. And that's what it looked like. Hendrix got a dollar, got a chance to gig uh, around with his R&B band, got some studio time under his belt, but he really didn't think anything would ever come from it. But the contract was never bought up, and it came back to bite him. And that New York producer started putting out these uh, recordings from 65, put out singles, and LP, and it really got into a legal mess. And in the book, there's some pre-trial testimony where Jimmy talks about under oath. So a different set of questions than what he was asked in uh, the mainstream media. And uh, here's Hendrick's reaction to some of those 1965 singles there. (laughs) He just thought they should not be released and just thought they were hysterical that somebody would want to put them out. Anybody know who this is on the cover? I'm testing you guys like... Grace Grace Lick. And why is she in blackface and giving the Black Power salute? Because of the uh, 1960 Olympics, the Summer Olympics, and the Black Power salute that these two guys gave. So I found a very interesting article, an interview with Jimmy from 1968, where he's the at his most radicalist, if that's a word, and saying statements that, you know, obviously don't go along with the love crowd. And, uh, the title of the article is Jimi Hendrix, Black Power and Money, and it was done here in Los Angeles when uh, Jimmy was sh- living shortly at, um, in the Benedict uh, Canyon area. And here's what Hendrix had to say, unfortunately that, that tape doesn't exist, I tried to ask the lady that interviewed him uh, if that tape's still around, but Hendrix said, get the Black Panthers not to kill anybody, but to scare the government. It's hard to say, I know it sounds like war, but that's what's going to have to happen. It has to be war if nobody's going to do it peacefully. I mean, who knew that Jimi Hendrix said like that, those very strong words, and uh, so I included that in in the book there and I think you'll find the the entire interview very interesting. Here's Hendrix uh, being interviewed uh, about his blues playing. This particular uh, reporter wanted to know if there was going to be a future album full of just, just of blues.
1: You can do
4: more uh, blues material. Sure, stuff like a more blues oriented. Definitely, well like yeah. different size of this that you've seen yet yeah, and it takes about maybe about five more LPs before we get really, mm-hmm. you know. But like, what we're doing now is like, just oh, using um, the three piece and exhausting it until we can't uh, you know, get out, only one out of it right, at a particular time. And you're know, going Yeah, we, when we fill it, though. You know? Yeah, right. For... But like for the blues, man, I wrote millions of them, and like, if we would've used them all, the whole LP would've been blues LP. Yeah, I would like to get more blues, back. So. Yeah, so that's why we're gonna release another double LP. A double LP just the <laughs> blues? No, not sorry, yeah. <laughs> not necessarily so. would probably be about seven tracks of blues mm-hmm. on it.
3: I think the reporter really wanted a blues album out. And as some of you probably know that there was eventually a full album of uh, Jimmy playing the blues and uh, it came out in the mid-90s there. 1969 now, Hendrix got arrested for hash and heroin as he was coming across uh, the Canadian border there. Uh, The the incident uh, made the cover of Rolling Stone also caught the attention of these two guys here, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI and President Richard Nixon. Uh, Hoover started a um a file on Hendricks, an FBI file, uh, rather extensive, and I was able to find years ago a lot more information that the FBI had on Jimmy. It was just incredible. So this bust in Toronto in 1969 led to a court case eventually later in 1969 in December, and I've included the court transcripts of uh, Hendricks uh, giving uh, his version of what happened. He was eventually acquitted. It was, uh, the jury was convinced that it was a gift from a fan, and fans Gave you know rock stars all kinds of gifts back then, including hash and heroin, and he was eventually acquitted, and um, so that's in the book, and it just shows you uh, kind of Hendrix's more kind of light approach to different things. One of the questions that the prosecutors asked is, is that you know there was a, some hashish found in his flight bag, and what did he use hashish for? And Hendrix jokingly said, "Well, I use it for bad kitchen odors," you know. And then the next question was, well, do you have a kitchen? And Hendrix said no. <laughs> Here's Hendrix on the Dick Cavett Show. Uh, in the summer of 69, Hendrix appeared twice on the Dick Cavett Show and once on the Johnny Carson Show. Uh, unfortunately, somebody had a home tape recorder that they captured um, the Carson Show interview with Flip Wilson, not Johnny Carson. And so I made a transcript of that for the first time and both t- Dick Cavett shows. Here's Hendrix talking about his philosophy of electric church music.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I turn him on. It's really amazing. Yeah. I heard the. Uh, I heard you use. Uh, I, I want to clear something with you. I heard you use the expression uh, "an electric church" as, a, as an ambition you had. Was this speaking metaphorically or poetically, or do you really want to? Well, Honestly, I don't know. it's just like.
4: This a belief that I have. You I know, mean, and it's we do use electric guitars. So everything, you know, is electrified nowadays. You know. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the belief comes into you know through electricity to the people. Whatever, that's why we play so loud because it doesn't actually hit through the eardrums like most uh, groups do nowadays. You know, they say, well, we're going to play loud too because they're playing loud, and they got this real shrill sound. You know, it's really hard. We playing for our sound to go inside the soul of the person, actually. You know, and see if they can awaken some kind of thing in their minds. You because know? there's so many sleeping people. You <laughs> can call it that. You know. Too.
3: So there are two interviews with Cavett in the book that I, that I found really interesting. And, and surprisingly enough, uh, to get permission, I thought Cavett, the Cavett interviews would be really hard to include in this book. But uh, Dick Cavett was very gracious and said, go ahead and use them.
1: What do you think the sound of the future will be then?
4: Well, I don't know. I'm not
3: going to You know, I can just only go back to what I want. On my own
4: side, I, I'd like to get into more symphonic things so then kids can respect the old, traditional, you know, like classics. Let them mix that in with, um, you know, with the so-called rock today. But it's always changing according to the attitude of the people. You know, when the air is static, loud, and aggressive, that's how the music gets. When the air starts getting peaceful and and harmonic and so forth, that's how the music will get. So it's up to the people how it's going to be. But the music is going to be, regardless of its rock or whatever, it, you know. It's going, to, it's going to influence a whole lot of people's minds now because, like I said before, that's part of their church now.
1: You know. Well, music is considered extremely
4: emotional and it's supposed to rid the individual frustration. That's what they Yeah, saying. if people let, let it. It does, it's, it's, it's mindful, yeah, instead of trying I
1: to. that from my own experience. Like, by
4: really a tight, I tense and everything, I go so is really oh, to and on for whiskey, it's really new. Or you listen been listening to Andy Williams or some people, he's very relaxing, for instance, you know.
3: Andy Williams. Who knew that Jimmy was a fan of the late Andy Williams there? This is a very interesting interview. Uh, it was done by a lady named Nancy Carter, who at the time was going to uh, the University of Southern California here, uh, working on her master thesis. And she approached Hendrix's management and said, I'd like to interview Jimmy and get his responses to some of the uh, things that I want to include in my thesis. And they said, yes, no problem. She spent about an hour with him uh, when he was staying at the Beverly Hills uh, Hilton. And And uh, she was telling me, I interviewed her later, that uh, Hendrix uh, came to the door when she knocked on the door wearing just a kimono and the two of them spent about an hour together getting really into some very different subjects than are asked in some of the regular interviews that were found in magazines there. So I think you'll enjoy that too in the book. The book concludes with Hendrix's final interview given in 1970, just about a week before he died. Listening to these tapes of Hendrik speaking over and over, like I did for several months in a row, I could really hear a shift in his tone. Let me set the stage here. Uh, This interview happened just about... Uh, about a week after Hendrix gave what turned out to be his final concert performance in 1970. His bass player, Billy Cox, was given some LSD in a punch drink that he didn't realize that was in there and it was the first time he had tried LSD, had a totally bad experience, Went went back home to America to recuperate Mitch Mitchell, the drummer for the group. His wife had just given birth to a baby, he wanted to spend time with her, so the band that Jimmy was touring with just dissolved right under his feet. Management wanted him to stay out on tour. There was pressure to find replacements quickly so they can continue this European tour. Back home, Warner Brothers wanted more product. They hadn't had a studio album on Jimmy since Electric Ladyland since 1968. So Hendrix was under a lot of pressure. He didn't know if he should go back to New York and continue working at his new studios, Electric Lady, or stay in Europe and try to find somebody. So you can kind of hear this confusion in his voice here. Let me play you some of this last interview. Do you personally feel that the excitement has gone out of things? I
4: mean, no, I was going like that before because I was thinking too fast, know seems like you know, a person has a tendency to get bored because like, he always wants to try to do all these aco- accomplishments, you know. Like starting with ideas like that and never quite finishing them out, you know. Do you feel that lack that language, you've never really been truly uh, criticized as a songwriter? Well, um, probably it's a good thing because I'm still trying to k- get that together, you know. All I'm is just what I feel, that's I didn't really put as only a guitar player, or either only as a songwriter. Only as a tap dancer, or something like this. <laughs> no. I do only, you know, I been around. Is it important for you to achieve recognition as a
0: songwriter? I don't know, really. I guess it would be if I wanted to stay back and predominantly write songs when I can't go on stage anymore. You were quoted in one paper saying that you wanted, you didn't really care what you did as long as you turned people on. Right. Now what do you want to turn people on to, apart from your music? Is there any moral or
4: political intent in the kind of things you want to write? Um, I like them to get easier in the mind a little bit, because there's too many heavy songs out nowadays. Music is getting, you know, or at least it has been getting too heavy, like, right?
3: you know, almost to the state of unbearable, you know. I had this one little scene, when things get too heavy, just can't be helium. The light is not gas, the man that's the last part of the book uh, his last interview done in 1970 and I felt there should be a little something extra in the book and I had interviewed Eric Burden here who was holding up a copy of my fanzine in the mid 90's and Eric knew Jimmy when he was touring with Little Richard in 65 saw him again when Hendrix was putting together an audition for the Jimi Hendrix experience getting new members getting forming a group then in 1966 and the two cross paths in 67 they were in Monterey 68 here in in uh, Los Angeles, right up to the end. In fact, uh, one of the last, the last public appearance Jimmy gave with, was with Eric's new group called War just a few days before Jimmy passed away. And in fact, also, uh, Burden was the first person called when the lady that Jimmy was with got sick. She, instead of calling the paramedics, called Eric Burden first. So I concluded the book with Eric's recollections of the time that he knew Jimmy and I felt it was just a, important just to get a little different perspective on somebody that knew Hendrix really well. As bonus material in the book, there's an unpublished interview with Monica Damon. She's the lady that was with Jimmy uh, the last few days of his life and was the one that called Eric Burden there. Uh, I know this guy named Alan Greenberg who had ambitions of writing a, a manuscript and a uh, screenplay for this movie on Jimmy and he interviewed Monica shortly before she died, committed suicide, and got, really got some different information out of her. And as bonus material to the book, if you go to my website, steveroby.com, you can read this unpublished interview along with another 1967 rare interview with Hendrix. So that's on my website there. Let's give a listen to um, what Monica and Alan Greenberg had to say.
0: Oh, man, Monica, you have pictures here that are just incredible. I don't, I don't care if it's a little out of focus, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It's beautiful. I
1: mean, I've got more than that, but they're the best ones, really. I and mean, uh, this
0: is the same, this is the innocent Jimmy that could have been in Seattle as a youth with his broom, you know? I mean, yes, this is the same
1: is, one. That is the real Jimmy. That, is not, that was him Because the
0: real artist has an eternal child that never dies. Yeah. And this See. is, you photographed it. This is the proof. Mm. oh a man. For me, to envision him when I write, this is very important for me to have seen. That was his whole struggle, to keep that child alive. That was it. Mm.
1: And he kept it alive. He
0: kept it alive, you know. Once, and it's yeah. the child here that's sad because the child knows something that the man doesn't at this point. He, mm. The child knows he's going to die. There's like a sadness and a resignation to it.
1: Well I tell you one thing, like I said to be I mean, for the, the last few days, before his death, there were he positive, you know, which made me later, I mean, we talked so much the last few days, and um, so they were scattered, these, these uh, what he said to me, and it didn't didn't trigger anything in me. So there was one time where he said to me, um, I want you never to forget that, if I'm not with you anymore, my spirit will be always with you. So I said to him, I said, what do you mean? When
0: said, was this, like three days?
1: That was about three days or two days before he died. And I said, what do you mean? I said, we will be together, so why do you say that? He said, oh, I just want you not to forget that my spirit will be always with you. So uh, some, it didn't sound, so I said, what do you precisely mean?" And he co- I think he caught it on that I the, something disturbed me there. So he said to me, he said, well, if I'm on tour, for example,
0: um,
1: <laughs> and he was putting me at ease this way and I sort of fell for it because he went then quickly into another subject and as usually something very, very interesting, you know. So I lost, I forgot about that. Only after he died, I remembered this, for example, you know. I said, well, that book the strong. with where I, I thought something is not quite
3: right the way you said it. So again, that uh, entire interview, the text of that interview is on my website, steverobey.com. So that uh, concludes things tonight. If uh, I'd like to open it up now to questions. If you have any questions about the book or anything else uh, that you'd like to talk on, I'd be happy to take the first question.
0: Do you, do you ever get surprised after um Working on this particular subject for
3: so long that you you think oh I never realized that before. I, I'm amazed. I'm always continually surprised that that uh, new material still keeps showing up. Um, I was about a year ago. I was at Jimmy's graveside, you know, paying my respects and started up a. Um, Conversation with a fellow Hendrix fan, and we, you know, we're just reminiscing about Jimmy. He had seen him in concert in uh, May of 1970. I'm sorry, in Miami uh, in 1970, and uh, said he had a recording that he's never let out, and. I said what? <laughs> the Hendrix archivist to me. Several of my friends here know what that feeling is like. Somebody says, oh, "I've got it. and I've cleaned it up. I've cleaned it. It was a cassette recording and I had the best equipment I could, you know, buy then and I've cleaned it up and it sounds amazing." I said, "Well, what are you doing with it? What are you going to do with it? Why aren't you sharing it?" Well, I've approached Experience Hendrix about it and they've given me the run around. I went to Experience Music Project which is a big uh, partly a Hendrix museum up in Seattle and, you know, they didn't want so I'm just gonna, you know, keep it. I said, "Wow, well, can I get your name and number and stay in touch with you?" You know, if one day you change your mind. But it's stories like this that, you know, 42 years after Hendrix has left this planet, that people still have material that hasn't come out yet or they're keeping for some reason or another. And yes, I do get amazed when uh, new things like that happen there. Anyone else?
4: What did
3: he die from? Well, he technically died from. Um, Choking on his own vomit when he got sick. He ingested some of the lady that we just saw on the screen there, some of her sleeping pills, her pain pills, I should say, and he had taken too many of them, so his body's reaction was to throw that up, and in the process, he choked on his own vomit, just in, you know, everything like that. We still don't know. I mean, there's a lot of theories and speculation of of foul play. One theory is that um, his manager, had somebody kill him. Another is that um, he took his own life. Um, but I tend to believe that he really didn't have to die. and under the, maybe the right circumstances, we'll never know the true facts there that you know he really didn't have to die. You know it depends what you read, what you want to believe, but uh, we lost one of the great guitar players of our time. Anybody else? Sir? Sure. Did
0: he ever play anything at Electric Lady uh, Studios? Did he ever record anything? Yeah. Because the- I know I think it opened.
3: Exactly um, he uh, was got most of that double album first rays of the New Rising Sun completed and the plan was to go back to New York and finish it up there but it never happened I mean it was just Jimmy's dream to have his own recording studio because he would just the recording studio was basically his home he would spend 10 to 14 hour periods in there racking up you know enormous amounts of money and finally management said, well let's build your own recording studio and make it state of the art and you know you can Play roll around what you want with it, but yeah, there was some of the final recordings, were uh, studio recordings were done there. Yeah, did, uh, did uh, Janie Hendricks uh, give you free reign what you wanted to use in this book? What you wanted to put in there? Did she say, No, you can't use that? Next question, please. (laughs) Janie Hendricks, my my former boss, yes. Uh, No, I did not contact Janie Hendricks at all and did not need to contact Janie Hendricks at all because um, these particular pieces that are in the book were licensed by the owners of the material. Uh, Some of the European uh, interviews, I tried. I mean, a lot of these magazines, we're talking over 40 years, are not around anymore and don't exist and I couldn't find the actual writer. But I mean, if they're out there and they want to contact me, there's a part in the book where how they can do that. But uh, I didn't have to deal with the experience Hendrix at all. They didn't own uh, the material that I use and I felt what's included in the book really shows a wide spectrum of uh, Jimmy's thoughts from 66 to 70.
0: I, I forget what those people are called, but uh, is
3: is one of those people who saw things in like colors. I know like, some yes, like, like yes, yes. There I is uh, Oliver Sacks yeah. uh, has a whole book on that, and um, <laughs> anybody want to help me out with that word? Uh, synesthesia. synesthesia. Yeah, right. Um, and it's funny you should mention that they're uh, part of my book tour. I'm going to be uh, further down in Southern California, and. Uh, There's a lady who worked on a film that Jimmy was doing uh, called Rainbow Bridge, and one of the people that designed Jimmy's clothes said that she transposed, if that's the right word, Jimmy's music into notes, and there is a theory, I guess, of some colors and notes can have a healing property to them but yeah Jimmy was into that you know I mean, we were all into a lot of different things back in 1970 if you were around back then um, and uh, yeah that was a whole part of that too yeah anybody in the back row got a question there no I'm sure you do there we go
4: direction was his
3: music going in? Very good question. What direction was Jimi Hendrix's music going in, into? Uh, Jimmy's stepsister, Janie Hendrix, who we just talked about, uh, recently gave an interview and said that Jimi was leaning into earth, wind and fire type of sound which I don't hear at all. I've listened to a lot of unreleased recordings. Some recordings done with uh, the great jazz guitarist John McLaughlin, uh, Larry Young, great keyboard player, uh, the jammed with Ross on Roland Kirk, and if you follow even Miles Davis's music from his early recordings in uh, 1970, 69, 70, In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, in the early roots of jazz rock fusion, I think that's where Jimmy was headed. I don't hear that earth, wind and fire, fire, uh, pop, disco, Pre disco um, pop, you know, dance music kind of sound. I hear more of a jazz fusion direction he was going into, and there's also evidence too that Hendrix was uh, dabbling into what eventually became rap music. Uh, it wasn't called rap music back in 1969; uh, it was called Jail Toast. And there's a um, link on my blog where I wrote a um, op-ed piece, kind of following up on Janey's uh, comments, uh, where. He dabbled with a group called The Last Poets and there's a 13 minute recording out there called Doriella DuFontaine and um, it's, it's a very kind of, you can hear rap kind of forming out of this song and Hendrix laid some scratch guitar and bass and Buddy Miles was playing drums and added some organ there. So if you haven't heard that, check that out, I mean there's uh, some evidence that Hendrix may have uh, dabbled if he were around long enough in, into rap music, hip hop music maybe, yeah. The last, poets. the last Poets, actually just the lead singer uh, who went by a nickname of Lightning, Lightning Rod. How did he meet them? Uh, in 1969, Hendrix wasn't using Chas Chandler as a producer hanging out in New York, cross paths with a very avant-garde uh, record producer by the name of Alan Douglas. And Alan was into people like... Brosson, Roland Kirk, Miles Davis, knew Miles Davis, was going to get Jimmy down to a recording studio to record with Miles Davis. It never happened. But he knew these guys, The Last Poets. I don't know if any of you have heard their music. It's really intense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, he got Jimmy and uh, the lead singer of The Last Poets, the leader of The Last Poets, I should say, together, and they did one recording. Uh, really amazing stuff. Yeah, really cool. Anybody else... This, we haven't heard from this side of the room. for silent over there. Anyway, thank you all for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the book. You. Be happy to sign copies now, too.